This episode of Breaking Banks is brought to you by FIS. From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in the digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually, serves 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. I am your host, Brett King, and joining me in the hosting chair is Ajit Tripathi. Are you in the UK, Ajit, or where are you today? Yeah, I'm back in London after a wonderful Bitcoin Miami. Bitcoin Miami, how was that? That was absolutely amazing. It was full of digital assets. It wasn't a, a super spreader event? It was, but that was because a bunch of Europeans who uh, didn't want to get vaccinated and managed to escape yeah. into the U.S. through Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> into the U.S. through Mexico. That, that's uh, We could do a whole show on that. Um, so we're going to be talking about ESG today, sustainability. Um, we're going to be talking about the role of the financial services industry in that. Um, joining us today are three guests. I'm going to introduce them all right now, but we're going to progressively uh, discuss that with them. We have Yuval Ruz, who's the co-founder and CEO of Digital Asset. We have, welcome Yuval, back to the show. Thank you for having me. We have Marley Gray. He's uh, with Microsoft. He's a principal architect on blockchain at Microsoft. Marley, welcome. Uh, uh, thank you. And we have Joe Madden, uh, co-founder and CEO of Expansive. Um, Joe is an experienced entrepreneur in the clean, green economy, and Expansive is a marketplace for ESG. We're going to get into that in a moment. But first, Yuval, um, kicking us off right out of the gate, um, you know, last week there was some interesting news. Digital Asset um, announced a partnership with NASDAQ to bring your DM DAML uh, platform or driven applications to NASDAQ. W what does this really mean for, for NASDAQ and, and Digital Asset partners? Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Brett, Ajit, thank you for having us and, and looking forward for the next discussion about ESG, but specifically about the NASDAQ announcement. As everybody knows, um, everybody usually familiarizes themselves with NASDAQ being uh, an exchange in the US. Um, they don't know that NASDAQ also operates exchanges globally. So they run other exchanges outside of the US in different asset classes, but they are also a technology provider. Um, so when you look at the NASDAQ marketplace, this is coming from their technology team that are allowing people to issue digital assets and using a lot of the tech ecosystem that NASDAQ had to create for their own markets and be able to use those technology tools to build uh, new types of asset classes, use their ma uh, matching engine technology, 
uh, and allowed to build like really new businesses on top of their tech stack. Um, so really what we've been doing with them is integrating the ability to issue and create applications using DAML, our smart contract language. And from now on going forward, you'll be able to build DAML applications, uh, eventually integrate into their matching engine, be able to trade those assets on NASDAQ technology. Absolutely. And so um, are they already using your, your tech at NASDAQ and that's what brought on this uh, partnership or, or is this, this sort of brand new out of the box? NASDAQ has good familiarity with our technology is all I will share. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, excellent. Now, um, most recently you were also asked to join the, um, is it the uh, Global Blockchain Business Council? Yeah, um, so so Digital Asset have been a member of GBBC for quite some time. Um, the the recent announcement is me joining uh, as one of their board members. And again, I think that uh, Sandra has done a really good job uh, showing the capability of this technology, but also creating a good market or or uh, an organization that brings together all types of participants. So all the way from vendors, those that are actually building uh, products or tools uh, based on this technology, all the way to the customers that are going to consume this technology, but to standard bodies, government bodies, really building a really nice ecosystem. And I think have done a great job uh, pushing forward and helping everybody who's participating in this industry. Obviously, there's a lot of potential in respect to um, blockchain being used for a ton of applications. But one of the specific areas we wanted to talk about today was the use of blockchain in um, the ESG space. But specifically in terms of the work that Digital Asset is, is doing, obviously DAML looks at a, a bunch of, you know, capabilities where you can use this tech. You know, which industries do you think are um, you're more advanced in respect to the utilization of blockchain today, whether it's in the supply chain or, or whatever it may be in financial services in general. Yeah, um, so I think what you will hear today is that in the ESG space, uh, quite advanced uh, projects are progressing. Uh, but outside of that industry, I would say that financial services are probably leading the charge uh, on using this technology but you're already seeing today insurance, supply chain, healthcare are those that are, are kind of right behind it. But this is going into just so many different industries. I started seeing uh, cases in IoT, uh, self-driving cars, uh, like there's just so many different industries, but I still think that, that way ahead are financial services, supply chain, insurance, uh, ESG would kind of be the, the top industries that I would state. So you all, you've, uh, you know, you and DA both have had an interesting journey in the sense that uh, I think chess was the first major project in Australia uh, that, uh, you know, DA did a lot of work on. And I think there was an, uh, there was a, 
um, uh, uh, then I, I think a message from Dominic Williams, is it Dominic Williams, uh, Dominic Stevens, uh, who said that, you know, the, the, the number, the volume of transactions on chess will far exceed anything that we're seeing in the crypto asset industry. So, I mean, do you see that coming through? And since then, you know, you also built uh, technology that doesn't necessarily require the use of a blockchain. So where do you, can you, can you tell us uh, what that story has been? Yeah, so I think I think um, I started looking into crypto and blockchain in about 2012, 13, uh, more working for uh, DRW Trading, uh, who's the owner of Cumberland Mining, which is a big OTC crypto uh, market maker. And we started building blockchain applications. And, and one of the things that we ran into quite early is that building these applications in a way that scale maintains privacy where you want privacy to be maintained becomes very complicated very fast. So really the the, the background, the, the, the goal for DAML was how do we abstract away uh, building distributed application from all of those complexities that developers run into very quickly. Um, and that was really the genesis of developing a brand new language. A lot of people are trying to take existing languages and restricting mm -hmm. the behavior and we really wanted the developer that goes into the world of distributed applications to say, I'm in a different world. I am no longer in my traditional enterprise application development. I'm now doing something different. I need to think about things differently. I can't just print a log to say, what is the state? Because that log might spill information that I'm not supposed to see. So there's different mm -hmm. things that you need to think about as a developer. And that was the goal of DAML. And we were building our own blockchain. And then we, what we started seeing is that you start having all these blockchains appear, right? And effectively, we, are, we believe that blockchain will become a commoditized product. And when I say that, I'm not saying that as a negative word. I'm saying that as a very, you know, pragmatic, right? Like it's like cloud today. You could look at all the big cloud providers. For the most part, you get Kubernetes, you get storage, you get you know identity management, you get a lot of those building blocks, and there's not that many significant differences. So what you will see when you hear Marley talk, but what you're seeing from cloud providers is them trying to differentiate themselves, offering different services. We think very similarly about blockchains is that eventually there will be the leading blockchains in the world, but at the end of the day, the difference in, in in, in what they provide to the customer is not going to be that significant. And we wanted to create a development uh, framework that allows the developer to say, I'm building a distributed application. Is it running on uh, Corda blockchain, Fabric blockchain, VMware blockchain, Ethereum, public Ethereum, base? It doesn't really matter to me. I'm trying to build a distributed application. And that's really what DAML provides the customers, this uniform ability to build distributed applications deploy it even on traditional technology today, think Postgres, Oracle databases. Mm -hmm. But if I wanted to move it to the new world of blockchain, um, I won't have to rebuild my entire application stack. And this really has been the journey and it's, and it's um, over the last few years have very resonated with clients because I yeah. think that one of, the, one of the biggest issues of this technology from an adoption perspective is imagine that we're now working with an insurance company they want to replace their entire admin platform. Imagine you say to them, you need to bet on a technology. And if you make the wrong bet, 
in two years, everything that you've been working <laughs> on for the last two years, you'll have to redo from the ground up. That is not yeah. something that an insurance company we wants seem, to do. We seem to be no. entering this new era of, of sort of programmatic conception. You know, we've got quantum computing, we've got distributed applications. They all require pretty different thinking in respect to design than what we had in the in the 20th century. But that's I guess that's fitting as we go to a, a world that relies on digital whether it's distributed technology or whether it's quantum or whether it's AI, you know, the whole world is going to run on, on tech, you know, and so um, we need much bigger systemic thinking, I think, you know, in respect to this. And But, you know, um, I, it wasn't lost on me that Ajit has his ETH T-shirt on today. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's 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 Aave. So, so Aave is you know uh, is a very very well known decentralized finance protocol, and uh, so you all. Uh, so you, I have the opposite journey of you. I went from enterprise blockchain to crypto, and you came from crypto to essentially enterprise. So you know we have had this journey where enterprise was really a big thing, and everyone was doing enterprise blockchain for three years, and then crypto really took over, and enterprise kind of receded into the background. And I think the, you're inside there uh, because I've seen and now a number of you know enterprise blockchain projects replace the underlying ledger with a database is quite remarkable in the sense that you know uh, the, the smart contract layer is still there and that's kind of you know what you can build with Daml, uh, whereas the underlying ledger. So so how did you come up with that insight where you said, look, okay, let's just decouple the ledger, you know, the, which is the underlying uh, recorded transactions and who owns what from the actual smart contracting language and the domain specificity? Yeah, I, th I think it's actually fairly easy. It's not that deep insight. You're going to talk to Marley and Joe and really where the value, where the IP comes in is the, is the IP and the knowledge in the business process in, in, in how you run. How do you build a global registry of carbon credits? How do you build uh, an exchange that brings together multiple different silos of uh, ESG registries. Like those type of things, that's where the IP is. And for us, um, what we wanted to do is how do you separate your IP from what technology you're using? At the end of the day, a customer might say, yeah, in the future, maybe blockchain will have some value add to us, maybe not. How do I actually build my application in a way that I don't have to bet my business on it today? And that's really where the insight came from, is that DAML really helps the customer capture their IP, their business, and it does it independent of what the underlying technology, but it gives you much more optionality into the future. The second part is really, again, looking at some of the protocols that are out there that really forces the developer to know how these underlying technologies work in order to build a scalable, mm -hmm. secured application. I think that a good analogy would be the equivalent that everybody who wants to build today a website really needs to know how TCP works for that website to work. That would be insane. <laughs> like that, that, that would be like nobody would actually ever say oh, yeah. that. Like you, there you was would be a able time. to do anything. There was a time. You're right. There was a time. There was a time. And, well, and what, it was in what, the nine, late 1960s, perhaps. 80s or something, yeah. <laughs> but the point is that, that smart people were able to say, well, actually, if you want to be very productive and if you want to be able to create websites and innovation on the front end, you can't expect every developer to know the inner works of TCP, uh -huh. SSH, and those kind of things. And we think very similarly, if you build a distributed application, whether the distributed application runs on... Uh, decentralized ledger, 
whether it's an open chain, a closed chain, or you run it even in an Oracle database, there's just so many different repetitive uh, patterns that are hard to get right. And what DAML does is it abstracts all of those away from the developer. And, and that's where we're seeing that building very complex things like what Joe can talk about mm -hmm. that he's doing actually end up taking a fraction of the time uh, to implement. So it's not just it's not just giving you this this um, uh, this abstraction or not having to bet on a technology, but it's also how do you get into production faster, mm -hmm. thinking that you could actually run this this thing in production. And then the last thing before we go to the next subject, Brett likes to talk about smart pipes. He talks about that. Uh, he mentioned that that mm -hmm. that that phrase. And one of the things that we mentioned in our last funding round is building a global economic network. And we all know, I mean, Ethereum, we know, all know every public chain is trying to say, I want to become the computer yeah, I was the world, say right? And we believe that there's not going to be one computer that will run the world, right? It will be a mesh network, no different than the internet today. The mm -hmm. internet today doesn't mm -hmm. say, yeah. you have to run on this server. You, right? There are protocols that allow you to connect yeah. one to another, but you have different networks. And to us, really, the, the vision of DAML is how do you create this global economic network, which is going to be a mesh of many different networks that have those smart pipes that connect between, mm -hmm. between them, right? That, to me, is, is a more realistic uh, vision of where the world is going, rather than to have one DLT, one blockchain permissioned or not to roll them all. I think we've definitely come, to, you know, even in the crypto space, we have kind of now kind of settled on this multi-chain hypothesis. That's that's definitely a reality. But uh, right over to the next. Uh, let's uh, let's just ask Joe to join us at this point. Um, so, Joe, you know, this is a, a good point. You're in the commodities space. Uh, tell us a little bit about Expansive before we jump into the question about how you guys are utilizing blockchain in, in specifics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off. Pleasure to be here. Uh, uh, thank you, Brett. Um, so, expansive. We we operate uh, infrastructure and markets across uh, carbon, renewable energy, uh, water, and uh, and differentiated fuels. Um, so, we have an end-to-end -end, uh, infrastructure stretching all the way uh, upstream uh, into raw data and associated ESG data, uh, in through portfolio management uh, into um, spot. Uh, markets, exchange, and settlement, uh, and then into data, so um, the exhaust of those. And I think at, at the core, to Yuval's point, um, you know, I'm not a technologist at all. Um, uh, and so we could either- We won't hold that against you, Joe. Yeah, exactly. Um, I hope not. Uh, so, but um, the the need for the for the um, global economic system to incorporate new new forms of value is you know it's fairly pressing at this point and that would be an understatement so um, you know we could either be um, really good at technology or really good at markets and design of markets uh, and the creation of these new forms of value um, and so that's kind of our core competency so when we talk about a global economic network um, really requires interoperability and scale. Um, uh, when we think about this, uh, you know, the, the work that uh, DA has done and, and, and with DAML, that interoperability allows you to um, really uh, link together 
uh, a network uh, from an information perspective that actually feeds new markets and new products uh, or feeds new products uh, and information into um, the sort of global commodity market complex. So that's kind of the world that that we live in. Now, you know, in the contestable energy market and, and the commodities market per se, as you say, there's a lot of trading that, that goes on. Um, you know, they tend to be sort of, the traders have their own systems, disparate systems that they, they work together on. But how hard is it going to be to bring together the, the world's sort of energy trading and commodities markets on these sort of, you know, uh, blockchain-based systems? Well, so if we think about the proliferation of data at the edge, right, um, IoT um, and then um, large-scale data aggregation, that's all happening, you know, outside of blockchain. People are, um, data is proliferating um, and it is, um, um, you know, it's being generated and then aggregated up and becoming more uh, accessible. So um, that's all happening with or without blockchain. Um, and then when we think about markets, markets then tend to uh, need integrity. Um, and that's where you start to get into provenance of data and things like that. So um, there's a um, sort of a, a direct relationship between um, uh, the aggregation and configuration of data and then the provenance of that data so that markets can actually rely on what's happening. Because if you get into ESG, it's all information. Nobody's ever delivering an avoided ton of carbon. No one's ever delivering, you know, uh, the methane intensity uh, of natural gas or the water intensity of a bushel of corn. There, that's all a digital construct, right? So um, that provenance of data and, and then the interoperability to allow that um, uh, to stream into markets is is sort of essential. I d we definitely will get into some carbon sequestration stuff when we we ask Marley to join. But um, at this point, um, you know, it seems fairly certain as we move closer to the Paris Accords that there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of carbon tax type uh, uh, trading and 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 uh, negotiations. We've got a lot of organisations claiming they're going to be carbon neutral. Um, there's a ton of initiatives, you know, the, the Trillion Trees initiative. I think it was a billion at the start. Now it's a trillion. Um, there's all of these different initiatives where people are able to use these elements to, uh, um, you know, offset carbon. Um, but as in terms of, you know, the traditional energy market in the commodity space, um, how much pressure do you feel is coming on the big oil companies and the big coal uh, mining uh, groups like Rio Tinto and others in respect to their carbon platform? So I think it's it's you you can't understate the role of of, of the, the capital markets and the equity markets um, in this in this. So if we think about the drivers prior, maybe being regulatory um, or, or policy driven. These are really free market signals, right? So you have um, you have the the cost of capital and share price being directly linked to ESG performance, and so the net zero commitments are a result of that pressure, right? Uh, so then it's a matter of mapping something that's practical and achievable in association with those. But at the core, those drivers are different than they were um, even five years ago, right? So those are it's direct pressure. Um, and it's now a financial uh, question, and and you know, you know, the analysts and 
in in capital and equity markets are are you know using that as a lens uh, to to gauge performance. So how we, uh, uh, more specifically uh, on terms of the DAML stuff, um, you know, how are you, you guys implementing that and, you know, where is that making your ESG mission more um, powerful, more effective? So I think for, for, from our perspective, like this is all about scale um, and going back to Yuval's uh, comment uh, around uh, a global economic network, there are disparate systems um, there's multiple ledgers. Um, and when we look at this, um, bringing, uh, you're sort of moving from um, a disorganized uh, uh, data set at the edge and then moving closer and closer to organized markets. Um, the infrastructure that we're working uh, with DA on really allows for a, a centralized uh, approach or a common approach. Um, to things that start off very disparate uh, in markets, but all relate back to uh, ESG. So whether it's the, um, the you know, the GHG intensity of a barrel or uh, uh, the methane performance of um, uh, natural gas or um, the attributes of a biofuel or even the attributes of uh, an underlying unit of carbon um, all of that has to come back and be able to be managed in the same way that you manage other assets and transact them and move those into markets. So the, the core infrastructure that we're working on with uh, Yuval and his team really is designed uh, to uh, allow us to scale up that uh, and, and have a sort of common interface with all of that disparate um, uh, information at the edge. Awesome. Well, listen, guys, uh, we we got to take a quick break. Um, let's uh, let's do that. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Marley Gray and Joe Madden more about the how ESG is evolving in terms of corporate culture and how organizations adapt to to this new platform. You're listening to Breaking Banks, uh, Ajit Tripathi, and myself, Brett King. We're hosting. We'll be back with you in a few minutes. Since we focus on how banking and finance are transforming, I'd like to talk to you about three letters, F-I-S. From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in a digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually. It serves over 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks. They have the unmatched expertise needed to advance your business. Want to find out more? Head to fisglobal.com slash realnet. That's F-I-S-G-L-O-B-A-L dot com slash real net. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Before the break, we were talking with Yuval Roos from a digital asset, um, talking about their uh, work they're doing with NASDAQ and also the work uh, with various exchanges and partners on the blockchain and DAML, their uh, distributed application technology. Uh, Joe Madden joined us uh, from Expansive talking about their work in the space. Um, but at this point, um, why don't we uh, introduce Marley Gray into the mix. Um, Marley, you, you head up blockchain initiatives uh, 
at Microsoft, and in particular, you've been working on um, you know, Microsoft's carbon neutral mission um, that uh, they've stated most recently. Where does blockchain fit into the ESG mission for Microsoft? <laughs> yeah, so we uh, it's an interesting journey. So we we did make the the, the actually we made a carbon negative uh, commitment by 2030. Good, good. Just a little bit more ambitious. Thank you for the uh, clarification. Yes, sure. Um, and uh, so that was made, you know, at the the executive level, and it goes down to a team to execute that. And the, uh, the, as you try to get to a, a you know negative or a net zero position, there's you know, two strategies. The first is, you know, control what you can control, lower your GHG or carbon footprint as much as you possibly can you know, with your scope one and Sorry, two what emissions. Is, for, for for listeners, what is GHG? Greenhouse gas. Sorry. So. Right. Uh, so carbon, uh, usually use carbon like we talk about the U.S. dollar. It's sort of, uh, we, we say everything is equal to carbon. So we, we'll talk about, uh, we measure carbon and carbon equivalency. So methane, amount of methane is equal to X amount of, of carbon. Uh, so, you know, a group was assigned that task for, you know, you, you have to, one, you know, let's drive efficiency throughout Microsoft's campuses and our organizations, our data centers, everything. Uh, and then when you've done all you can there, you then need to uh, offset the emissions that you can't avoid. Uh, and you do that through, uh, in the voluntary space where um, Joe talked about the, the, uh, the, the culture changing in corporate America, where we're making these pledges for ESG purposes that directly affect our stock price. Um, so that's a voluntary space. So you're going out and you're purchasing carbon credits that you'll spend, which is essentially the offsetting to uh, or retire uh, them to uh, uh, to lower or net your effective emissions down to whatever your goal is. And you want to show that over a 10 year period and show progress. Um, so the uh, when you look at that and you say, um, if you think about this logically and everyone, and if we're going to do this at a global scale, and the first order of business is to lower your own emissions that you can directly affect. So that's driving efficiencies um, and then uh, offset. Um, so step one and then step two, uh, we looked at our step two and said, you know, if we're going to get to a negative position, we need to look at a specific type of carbon credit. And it's what we call a carbon dioxide removal. And it's a specifically a, a carbon credit that's based on a claim of someone removing carbon our carbon equivalency from the atmosphere and storing it either in a nature-based solution or a technology or geos, um, uh, the geosphere, you know, wherever. There's several different options there. So, so you're talking about something similar to the X Prize that Elon Musk and Peter Diamandis recently announced a hundred million dollar prize for carbon se- development of carbon sequestration technology. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sort of a uh, there's there's a couple of different ways to do it there's a the nature-based solutions so forestry's been around for a while lots of trees uh, yeah agriculture and agricultural practices is a massive contributor but also potential for capturing carbon in the soil uh, through farming practices and uh, there's lots of energy there in the ag space to sort of both you know use that and also monetize that um for another revenue stream for farmers how do you how do you capture carbon into the soil as part of farming that's a good question (laughs) and uh it has to be science-based so you have to be able to make a claim and you have to prove it so there's a couple of techniques that are being uh and it's usually a combination of techniques whether it's 
um, doing something called no-till, where you don't actually till the land before you plant your crops, which tilling up the soil reduces releases carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, using cover crops, so instead of leaving your uh, fields foul uh, between seasons, plant a cover crop that will have deep roots. So there's certain crops that will you know capture the carbon and, and store that carbon in the roots. So even when you burn the, the cover crop and destroy it, that carbon still sequestered in the soil unless you till it up, right? So you have to to do those types. There's there's many other ways to do that, controlling nitrogen and things like that. Um, but then there's this interesting bit on the technology side. Where we talk about direct air capture and having a factory that's just sucking massive amounts of air into the and through these filters and using a chemical process to capture the carbon and into. Uh, everything from you know, putting it and pumping it into a, a gas that you can then store in a abandoned uh, well. There's also a technique where you uh, use that uh, that carbon that's been captured to pump into an existing well to get more fossil fuels out, which is not necessarily a, uh, a net negative thing, but uh, yeah. it can be. Um, but then there's also you know potential for putting into physical materials, uh, carbon-based uh, building materials or you know, so there's a that's where you look at this, you know, projects that people are trying to innovate to figure out ways of removing carbon from the atmosphere directly and storing it. And that has a lot to do with what we call durability. And that's how long is that carbon stored? And that that really dictates how valuable the credit that you're at ultimately purchasing. If that credit is good for a thousand years or longer, then that's extremely durable. But if you borrow forest credit, the durability on a forest is, you know, 100 years at best. There's forest fires. There's um, all techniques there. Farming can, you can have accidental breaches. Somebody can till a field that wasn't supposed to be tilled. And, you know, the existing credits that were um, issued for that now have to be adjusted. And Cows that so, aren't supposed to fight, fight. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So it's complicated. But uh, now, now you're, you're a technology guy, right? Right. Um. Obviously, there's been a pretty steep learning curve. And Joe, I think, you know, you you jump in here as well um, in this space. Um, You know, what has it taken to get you guys to a point where you can talk about this stuff and be knowledgeable about these carbon sequestration technologies and things like that so that you can drive these programs from a corporate culture perspective? Well, I'll tell you, it's about a year and a half for me of being steeped in this and not knowing anything and tons of reading and meeting with countless uh, numbers of organizations. The good news is, is most people are trying to figure this out at the moment, right? right? It's right. real time. So you you don't come in with, a, you know, hugely in the hole. Now, there are lots of people in the science and academic fields that are way advanced uh, in these areas. But for the most part, you go to any large enterprise and you talk to their sustainability teams and they're, they're scratching their heads just as much as anybody else is. And uh, it's going to take collaboration. Yeah. It is that cultural element, right? How do you get the company as a whole in, in terms of Microsoft to understand what are the individual actions, the collective actions you need to take to be carbon negative? Um, that That's the culture that you know, you're, you're trying to create there. And so um, just like we talk about digital transformation, you know, we're talking about ESG transformation or, you know, carbon negative transformation, you, it requires a cultural shift, right? So is this, is this top down? So, um, so uh, it's interesting. So, yeah. Uh, so 
Um, just to, um, I think, I don't know what my timeline is in here. It's maybe 15 years. Um, I think uh, many of the folks um, with background um, in in this space, whether it's um, the market side or um, you know the verification or registration or certification side, or even some of the uh, programmatic approaches at the you know national and uh, international and subnational level, um, the the prior drivers were mostly top down, um, and I think what you see now is, and I think in, in my own personal journey, it came from. Um, seeing what worked potentially or didn't work uh, from a top down, and then also seeing um, how you might be able to build something from the bottoms up. And I think that's where we're at at this point. That if you're going to transform the way uh, the global economic system translates, understands, and communicates value, you have to have a new system to do that because the current one was designed on something that's about 150 years old. Uh, and that involves the markets. Um, and really being able to, to bring that information into the market. So I, I think it's almost like a, a new set of plumbing, if you will. Um, right. And then all of a sudden... The, With the top new down language, can, new yeah, terminology. Then the, but then the top-down approach can take a new approach. It's kind of hard to, to take what is and just flip it. You have to transform it, I think, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Oh. Ajit, go. Yeah, so a couple of things on that, right? So, I mean, ESG, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about ESG uh, out there. It's, you know, we've had a number of banks starting to talk about ESG, including Deutsche Bank. We have had Elon Musk change his views a few times on Bitcoin and ESG. We have had, we now have China making a big, you know, push towards carbon neutrality and so on. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a couple of questions. What's the role of technology here, right? As in, was and and how does DA's offering kind of play a role in helping ESG be something more substantial than uh, than essentially, you know, a, a word that not a lot of people really understand. Uh, Yuval, I mean, have you guys had to develop new tech to uh, to work for for this space? No, so so, and I want to make sure, Ajit. I don't think that there's any disagreement that ESG is important today. I think that yeah. uh, there's a lot of usage of ESG that people disagree, but I don't think that there's any disagreement that. Well, ESG... there was that there was that famous, um, you know, kerfuffle over Standard Chartered, who announced they were going to be all, you know, ESG carbon neutral. They weren't. No, they they announced they weren't going to fund any more. Uh, fossil fuel-based programs, and they got caught underwriting a $400 million loan to Rio Tinto. So, right. you know, there's a lot of ESG press stuff which doesn't necessarily make it into the cultural, oh. uh, you know, or policy side of the, the banking and finance space. I, th I, th I, think, I, think, I think my only comment is that ESG is real and something that we must focus on. Is there, are there, always, are there always going to be bad actors that join the bandwagon? of things that are a hot topic. Uh, we mm -hmm. all seen uh, this thing called ICO in 2017. Uh, so, you know, Ajit, if we want to go into your world and talk about, <laughs> you know, the ridiculousness of what happens in different spaces. So first yeah, of all- no, I'm no, no. I, I think the question start, is how- But let me, right. let me, let me get, so sure. I think that ESG is a real thing and something that we must solve, period, end of subject. Um, and, and we need For to sure. be able to separate the, the good from the bad. 
I think that if you ask Joe, who's been in this space for a very long time, this idea of carbon credits is nothing new. It's actually a mm -hmm. very old concept, and it's a good concept. It's trying to mm -hmm. use free markets to force companies to drive good behavior, because if they don't, they will run out of business, right? So it, it, it creates some mm -hmm. kind of a, of a financial. I think that the biggest issue that existed in carbon markets, and I think this is where we come into play with our technology or this type of technology, is that there was not a good way historically to verify and validate that a carbon offset that you have registered or any type of carbon credit is been registered once, uh, it's actually valid and have all the different actors that might be interested in this carbon credit know about its existence. So what you have seen even till very recent years is quite a lot of fraud in the carbon yeah, registry business. And, and I think that exactly that's right. where, I think that the only thing we haven't developed anything new is given the, the momentum that exists in this space and the interest of players, and I'm actually talking about genuine interest, not those that are just trying to make a quick buck, but actually companies like Microsoft who are really trying to be carbon neutral or like Joe's company who are really trying to bring these solutions. I do think that this technology lands itself well to create a much more um, confident registration of carbon credits. I, I, and, and that's literally all it is. I mean, it's, it's can you use this technology to bring confidence into the world of carbon credits, I, and, and it's nothing, nothing else other than that. So, Joe, um, how do we create transparency in terms of the carbon credit market as a as a baseline for all of these other things that we're going to be doing? Because ultimately, this is about um, you know the, the transparency in terms of responsibility of each corporation to be doing the right thing. So, yeah, and, and I, I would say that as we think about this, you know, I think the 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 existing um, uh, systems that um, are, are out there. I mean, you know, while there's, you know, folks point to, um, you know, challenges in the market and, you know, some, um, you know, bad actors and things like that, you know, the, the amount of learnings and, um, uh, uh, benefits, uh, that the groups that are out there today, which, you know, we work with today, they're, they're, um, amazing people and have had, uh, and organizations that have had, um, you know, years and years of experience, I think, uh, at, you know, what is needed to get down to integrity and things like that. I think what's before us at this point is the potential to scale up all of that knowledge, right? So you have that opportunity now, um, based on the potential for, for, uh, some of this, um, uh, infrastructure, uh, to support almost all of those learnings that, are, that have happened. But, I think I want to be super careful because I think there's there's very solid organizations out there that have have done an amazing job to sort of um, um, build these early markets and and want to make sure that you know there's a there's a transformation or a growth that happens, um, but we need to incorporate and and include and and move forward kind of from what is to what will be um, uh, because there's an awful lot of work that's been done and foundation that's been laid um, for these uh, on a, a you know. Uh, as we look to go forward. So I just want to, um, I see this as a migration um, of taking now basically knowledge and experience and then scaling that into uh, what can be because it has to be.
and and Mali, in terms of your experience with that, do you think that that um, that marketplace and the transparency of what other organisations uh, are doing is becoming clearer? Yeah, I, I think. Uh, yeah, so we saw this as a, a, a problem when we went to go source our own supply last summer. There wasn't enough of what we were looking to purchase anywhere that we could essentially have confidence in. So it goes back to what you all was saying is we were not confident of purchasing off the shelf carbon removals that were in the market. Um, and there were some reasons for that. And uh, so we um, sort of put our heads together in the industry and said, you know what we really need to do is we need to have everyone get in a room and let's agree on how this process for creating verified supply, uh, how it would, you know, from cradle to grave, let's describe that. And it was hard to find anywhere. You could find snippets here and there. So we did that through an organization called the Interwork Alliance um, and digital asset was in there helping us, you document this. We had lots of members there and we, we were finally able to do that. And some of the basic things were to really have a consistent way of making claims because essentially a carbon credit is a, is an intangible asset, a digital asset or token, whatever you want to call it, that's backed by some verified claim. And those claims uh, uh, can be sourced from, like we said, the diversity of uh, forestry, farming, direct air capture, all those things. And if they all have different ways of making claims, right. then it, there's in number of types, ways of verifying it, which is going to end up with this hodgepodge of carbon credits that no one can understand. So we need to have some, some consistent. Yeah. And at some point that's going to come into taxation for sure, right? Yes. It has to, right? <laughs> yeah. So oh. yeah, I think that the thing we're seeing, the digital uh that we can use for uh, blockchains and uh, distributed ledgers for and, and technology like DAML and uh, marketplaces like uh, Joe's can can use is you know defining the, the way claims are built over time and they're cryptographically provable and and they can then be independently verified. And then once they're verified, a digital asset or token can be issued that can then be in a standard format. So it has all of the the data that you're expecting to see. So someone can evaluate that and and exchange it or marketplace can list it. And someone like Microsoft could discover it and have confidence in that thing so that we don't have to go do an RFP process and do due diligence on 50 projects to source the, you know, that's a very costly thing for us to do. Yeah. And obviously not something that's scalable worldwide for corporates. And Ajit, if I can if I can jump in real yeah. quick specifically. So, so so now so now let's tie it back together with the conversation. Brett asked earlier, did we create mm -hmm. anything new from a technology perspective? Exactly. No, I mean, if you think about everything that we discuss in the ESG space, clearly is a very complicated ecosystem of multiple players that either need to share data in real time or actually are even competitive with one another, but do have a joint mission, which is to prevent fraudulent, fraudulent uh, carbon offsets, for example. Mm -hmm. So is there a way to use technology like DAML uh, blockchain technology, synchronization between data sources to create Brett's term, smart pipes between all the different carbon registries. So I can at least verify, let's say I'm a carbon registry in one country and some yeah. shady character comes to me and says, I want to register this carbon credit. Is there yeah. a way for that registry to verify was this type of carbon registered anywhere else in the world without necessarily having to get back from the network 
oh, here's that customer that they registered and here is how much money they got for it. But even just to get you know, through these smart pipes, yes, this individual tried to register this identical carbon. So you shouldn't be doing that, right? So I think mm-hmm. that really what, what we're doing, what we're working with Marley and with, with Joe and, and those type of firms is how do you create these multi-party applications that in mm-hmm. sometimes you do need to share information in real time, and sometimes you just need to know that something exists without you necessarily needing to know all that information. And that's really so where this, we think. Yeah, go ahead. So is, is this where having DAML and sort of a consistent, uh, a common language for expressing the the ideas in the domain uh, across different organizations with, you know. That, would be, that would be one example. Kind of? Like, how do you codify what's a carbon credit looks like, mm-hmm. right? How can you... How can you consume it's crazy it? It's crazy there's not you... like an international standard on this already. Joe, how, how are we going to get to that? Well, so I think there, so there are multiple standards uh, and certifications. And I think what I'm um, going back to your, um, um, uh, and, and a ton of expertise associated uh, with those, but going back to your question um, about tops down, top down versus bottoms up. Um, so, you know, whether it's um, uh, on the regulation or policy side, you know, there's been multiple jurisdictions that have taken their own actions, um, uh, and in you know, it's been at the international level, it's been at the national and the subnational uh, level. Um, there really has not been a um, a unified approach, at least at the policy or regulatory level, um, uh, and. And I think the difference or what's happened now is the free market is a global umbrella. Right. It, that is that, right? So you actually have it's, something. It's, well, that, it's had to be because no one else has done it, right? Right. But it is But it is actually that. And then you actually then can take that bottoms up to feed a free market as opposed to configuring to meet a, you know, uh, a market that was designed by a regulatory uh, body. Not that any of the regulation or policy was ill-intended or anything like that, but it was disparate. Um, and so when you take a bunch of different disparate approaches, you get, um, you know, um, sort of a lack of standardization. Yeah, now you're starting to see these driving factors. And I think Marley is articulating that at, you know, from Microsoft's perspective. So, so let me, um, you know, J- Joe, Marley in particular, I'll direct this to you. I want you to put your, f- your future hat on here. We're 10 years out. Um, there's no debate anymore that climate change is happening. Um, we're starting to talk about mitigating sea level rise and, you know, what's going to happen with Bangladesh and the Maldives and, you know, Miami and, and, and so forth. In terms of this, you know, what do you think of the global market in terms of carbon sequestration and carbon, carbon negative? Uh, you know, it, what, what, that, what does that look like in 10 years' time? And, and what role, you know, and, and is the blockchain going to be the thing that glues all this together? So I'll give you my perspective is that, that carbon and ESG factors um, uh, are, are on par with the existing market size or bigger than the existing uh, commodity markets in general. And I would, I would include fossils as a subset of that. Um, that would be my perspective of the market sizing. I think it's, it's we really can't actually comprehend the 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 size of uh, of these uh markets i mean it's a it's a different underlying we don't have these signals today 
it's a completely new way of thinking about the market. We could price we could price crude today out to 2050, but you don't know what the price of carbon is in 2050. But we will, and you'll have different um, products, just like you have WTI or or Brent today as futures products. You'll have multiple different signals around all kinds of ESG factors. All right. So maybe uh, Yuval, um, how would you, you know, sort of like to close this up in terms of the digital asset and the work that you guys are doing and how can others get involved in, in this program? So listen, I think um, Joe and, and Marley, first of all, are, are two really good partners. I think that, you know, the, the work that both Joe and Marley are leading uh, both of them uh, have room for a lot to participate in. At the end of the day, they are trying to create a network effect. Uh, I would say that Microsoft is trying to lead the charge on doing really good for the world because it aligns very well with their commitment to the world to become carbon neutral. And they're trying to figure out, as Marley described earlier, how do we solve our problem? And hopefully by doing that, we solve a big problem for other companies. So I think that they're there's different players that can join. If it's those that can bring value of how to how to solve carbon offset better uh, than today, all the way to financial players that want to play in that ecosystem. And then Joe is really trying to build an ecosystem both from a supply and demand side. So I think that there's uh, many who can who can approach both of them uh, to participate in what they're doing. From our perspective. I think that these two projects both align really well for us as a company because we do believe that ESG problem needs to be solved. So from a, from a moral perspective and something that must be done, but also we do believe that these two projects really take advantage of the full value proposition of DAML. And that's really why we like them. It's how do I create standardization and smart pipes between infrastructures that traditionally never communicated or never had these smart pipes between. Right, right. And therefore, as a result, where I, I can't remember who said this, it's not a question of does it work, it's now how do we bring scale? And I think that, that's, that that to me is, is really the part that is missing. Suddenly you have this massive demand, demand side and the infrastructure just doesn't know how to meet that demand. Um, so therefore, I think that this is a really good usage of our technology. Fantastic. Well, Yuval Ruse and the, the D digital asset team, thank you for the work you, you're doing in, in um, you know, creating these marketplaces and capabilities for this, Joe um, and, and Mali. Uh, you guys, um, you know, I, I, I see this, this is a career you could become truly passionate about. It is absolutely that, uh, can change the world. And so, certainly worth. Yeah, Joe, um, you know, for the work you guys are doing at Expansive Mali, for the work Microsoft is undertaking, um, you know, our, uh, 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 you know, we're, we're with you in this and, and we thank you for, for the efforts you guys are making in this. It, it, we have to change the rules. We have to do things differently, um, yep. you know, and, and it's great to see organizations like you getting in on this. That's it for this week, guys, for Breaking Banks. Uh, thanks, Arjun, for joining us and the co-hosting chair. Thank you so thank much, you, Brad, Marley, Joe, Yuval, and Marley. And, and don't forget... If you li like the show, uh, leave us a five-star rating, uh, tell your friends about us, uh, put it out on social media. Um, that's how others uh, learn about the great content at Breaking Banks. Uh, thank you again, and we'll see you again next week. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. 
We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.